Welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode three for June 2023. So it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. Coming up in this episode, Rachel Rowe tells us a little about the current £2 bus fare cap and relates her own experience of a recent trip to Yeovil. We take a closer look at well-known Sherborne Cafe and coffee shop Oliver's and learn a little bit more of the challenges currently facing the hospitality sector. Farmer and regular BV magazine contributor Andrew Livingston talks about the worries UK farmers have over post-Brexit trade deals and the shortage of seasonal agricultural workers. And I speak to nutritional therapist Karen Geary on the subject of snacking and whether it's a good or bad thing. But first, I caught up with Rachel Rowe last week regarding bus fares. Well, I'm joined today by Rachel Rowe, a regular contributor to the BV magazine online. And Rachel, thank you, first of all, for agreeing to join us. And uh, we're going to talk about the, the £2 bus fare cap, which I, I gather you're the uh, the clued up person on. Well, I've, I've experienced it. Yeah, so I'm, and, uh, it's, um, it's an interesting one at, at the moment. It's just, just um, it's something that's been running in, in um, nationally, actually, for several months now. And every time the deadline comes up, it seems to be extended by the government, which is, is good news. Well, it was initially introduced first uh, of January this year, wasn't it? And then it was mm. extend. Well, it was intended to be for eight weeks initially, wasn't it? But then it's, it's now been extended until the thirty first of October, and and even until November next year. So it it must have been quite a hit. It must have been quite successful. I think it has. I think the, the data I've seen shows that people started using it, but and I think people started finding out about it as well. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm too young for a bus pass, but so I, I don't really use the bus at all. In fact, when, I, when it was suggested that a, a group of people in the village were going to just take a trek out to Yeovil on the Y4, you know, I hadn't even used the bus before since I've been living in Dorset because I've, I always use the car. And um, there's a lady in the village who's very into sort of sustainable travel, and she got a trip up to go to Yeovil to go and see the mouse trap actually at the at the um, octagon. And there were about sixteen of us waiting at the bus stop, and probably about half of us had not really used the bus at all um, because it's just so easy to jump in the car. So it's it's a bit of a learning curve as well. But yeah, we got to Yeovil. It takes a bit longer, but it, it was quite nice really. It was you know the bus was full for a change. Well, it certainly had a positive effect in in that regard. But what what was the actual stated object? Was it was it to demonstrably boost bus travel, or was it to help with cost of living, or, or what was the government's original plan? Do you think it's a bit of both, really? It's, it's, a, it's, it's the sustainability is really important um, with with the um, with the bus travel. So that, that was the first that was the first thing. But there's also the cost of living. Because um, if if you are if you do have a bus pass, you can you can obviously you can get free travel, but there are some people who could use the bus for work and don't, um, and it would it's a cheaper option for them as well. And and then it's just about keeping some of the bus routes sustainable. We've all seen empty buses. And I think it's pretty clear, is it not, that the green element of it is so much better on a full bus. I mean, obviously not on an empty bus, but if you're running a bus with maybe 30, 40 passengers on it, it's a lot uh, more environmentally friendly than running a load of car journeys. It it is, yes, and carbon emissions go significantly down once you've got a bus that's full of people. And if you don't use them, then they will go. I have heard that it's been more successful in urban locations. Is that simply because there are more buses in urban locations? 
it's it's quite possible. And, and then the other thing that happens around here for sure is that buses don't run at the weekends. So sometimes that that restricts people from when they're going to use it. So if you were a shift worker, for example, it, it would be quite challenging if you had to rely on the bus in a rural area. But yeah, I think mostly in the urban areas because there's more routes, there's more buses. But sometimes I think it's just so easy to jump in the car, isn't it? And we just don't think about it. Well, maybe I could have used that. I suppose we should say slightly, slightly late on that in case anybody doesn't know that this is a cap at £2 for the time being until November. £2 per single journey. So if you make a return, it's a, it's a £4 maximum return. Is every bus company doing it? I did hear that maybe not all of them were. I think not not all of them. I think most of them are. And the best way to well, literally Google the bus company and see what they, if there are or not really. Some of them are quite particular about which route you can use. So, for example, if you were going to um, hop on and hop off a bus route, unfortunately, they don't always do that. But if you were going on a straight route you know, from A to B, then then that's when it's it's covered. And, and apart from the environmental side of it, which we've already mentioned, it is economically better from the point of view of the passenger as well. I mean, I don't know about your trip to Yeovil, how many people you might have taken in your car, but certainly from the point of view of a one person going to Yeovil, you wouldn't have to work, mm. to live too far away to make that a cheaper option, really. £4 return with no parking probably wins quite easily, yeah. doesn't it? That's right, yeah. It, and it's, it's you can just slow down and talk to people on the bus, you know, talk to the neighbours, get a catch-up on things. Well, I was going um, to ask you whether there's a social element to it as well. Well, there was a bit, I think, on the day I went. Yeah, it was, it was quite, it was quite good fun. Yeah, but sometimes it, it's also when you when you're driving, it's quite, you know, especially when there's jams and all the rest of it, it can be quite stressful and tiring. Quite nice to just be able to do something else. Your article actually mentions that it may not be the most generous scheme in Europe. I mean, there's there's a lot of focus now on on, on train travel in, in Europe. So, for example, France has just banned flights um, that go across the country. Um, so some of these shorter flights that go from Paris to Rennes, for example, those things, they stop them and people are taking the train. But in Germany, there's a, there's a deal at the moment where you can just go travel for a month on trains. And that's all the regional trains, um, 49 euros. So you could, if you planned it right, you could have quite a journey. I did spend some time a few years ago living in Switzerland where they've, if you're a resident, you just, if, I mean, the first thing I was asked, to, told to go and do was to, to buy a rail pass. Um, because you get half price train travel and they put extra trains on at the weekend so people can just get outdoors and go in the mountains and you know it's just so well served and efficient and I think if we have more schemes like that I think more people will probably look at them. Okay well we've got the school holidays coming up before too long and your article makes a few suggestions about some interesting days out. What do you recommend Rachel? The um, the breezer buses which go from Poole out to Swanage those are included in the deal so you could just go Pool to Swanage, um, or you could stop off in between because there's some lovely coastal um, rides there. I mean, some of those buses go on to Weymouth as well and into Lyme Regis. So there's ideas there. Some of there are buses that um, travel around the New Forest, and there's quite a few circular routes, so you could do some of those. I mean, I think it costs more if you drop off at every stop, but you could probably plan it to to um, stop off at one stop and then carry on to another one. That's, that's quite easy. Um, and there's also lots of places in North Dorset, so you could travel. There's always yeah, places to go, like Sherbourne, all, all kinds of places. So lots of ideas out there. This is set to carry on, isn't it? Because uh, the government has announced that it'll be £2.50 
all the way through to November next year. So it's obviously yeah. something that must be catching the, the public mood. Any sign yeah. of how successful it's been so far? I think people have noticed, I mean, I tried to find some data from, from the bus, but, and it shows that there, there are obviously there's more people using the bus, the buses, um, but there's still people trying just finding out about it. Mm. And I think it'll be quite good for things like Christmas shopping without having to find any car parking and things. So that's There's all sorts of opportunities there. Okay, yeah. well, we hope that it continues to be successful. Rachel, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about it. No, thank you. Okay. Rachel Rowe there on the buses. Now, Oliver's in Sherbourne is a well-known landmark cafe and coffee shop, but it hasn't always been that, as I called recently and spoke to Jane Wood about the cafe's history and some of the challenges currently facing the hospitality sector. Jane, thank you for talking to the BVM podcast. We're sat here in Oliver's. The place has got quite a history, hasn't it? Just tell us a little bit about the background to Oliver's. It's not always been a cafe, has it? No, it's been a cafe since 1986, and before that it was a butcher's and general provisions merchant's by the name of Mould and Edwards, known to the locals as Mouldy Edwards. Um, I think they were here from the late 1800s, depends who you ask, um, but I've definitely got photos going back at least 100 years. And the shop retains the feel of that, doesn't it? I think there's some old tiling here from the 1920s and the, the old furniture and the benches and things... Yes, the counter down the front um, is part of the original butcher's counter and the main front table. And then the alcoves in the middle room, I believe, or I'm led to believe, were shelves when it was a provisions merchant. And then they've just had false fronts put on them to convert them into the seating area that we see now. But it was converted to a cafe in the 1980s, is that right? 1986, I believe. So originally Mr Oliver set up down the road uh, on the corner of Swan Yard in a shop that's now called Gloria Staples. Before that, it was the Flower Barrow. I believe he was there for about a year. And then um, when this building became available, he moved up here. Hence the name Oliver's. And when did you come into the picture? I've been here since December 2011. Um, and before me, there was Lawrence Scott, who many people will remember. He was here for about 17 years, so he's still around in town, so he still comes in. Now, your background, I think, was in hospitality of some sort, but you'd, you'd been working in bars and uh, restaurants and things, but what made you take the leap and acquire your own business then? Uh, I've done all sorts. Hospitality was always my go-to, so from the age of about 15, I worked in hotels, restaurants, bars. And then I went off and did a maths degree, went into banking for a bit, went into uh, work for an electronics company and logistics, and then wanted to come back down to Sherbourne, which is my hometown. Um, I was self-employed here for a while, doing various bits and pieces, and then Oliver's came up for sale. um, And I knew I'd always wanted to run my own business, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And most of my experience led to hospitality, so uh, I took the leap. It's one thing having a background working in hospitality, it's another actually going and buying a business. How well prepared were you for that? What were the initial challenges? Well, I took over um, in December, which was pretty crazy. I think my second day was festive shopping day, which anyone that's been to Sherbourne on that day will know it's the busiest day of the year. So it was a little bit of a baptism of fire. Um, and yeah like you say I knew I knew about the kind of ordering and the procurement that kind of side what I didn't know was how to fix plumbing at 7am on a Sunday how to deal with some of the um, more peculiar and outrageous requests that we get I'd been in jobs where I'd had to interview people but I'd never been responsible for all the HR which could present its own challenges the laws change around that quite a lot so I've had to learn a lot on the job so I'm now 12 years in nearly 
um, and there's still things that come up that I don't really necessarily know how to do. But you've got quite a big team around you now. How has the business changed in the time that you've been the owner? I think really for me, the, the, the thing that's helped the most, it's a help and a hindrance, but the thing that's predominantly helped the most is the evolution of social media. So when I first took over, I think we had a Facebook account and then and I think maybe a Twitter account, but I didn't really know how to use it. And then Instagram wasn't really a thing. And then I signed up. I think I had a personal account and then businesses started to sign up. And then we realized that actually putting the time into it does generate the, the benefits. And certainly through COVID, we survived solely by social media because obviously the doors were shut so I would come in and bake and take photos and put them on Instagram and then by the end of the day I would have sold everything and I'd go off and deliver it all. I think social media was is for me the biggest evolutionary factor but really a lot of things are exactly the same as they were when I came along we still use the same suppliers some of the staff have been with me pretty much since the start or certainly for several years um, so so a lot of it's still the same but it's it's moving with the times a little bit with technology. I think is really the main change. And tell me about the team. You've got about 20 in total? Yeah, there's about 20. So in the week, you'll see mostly the same faces. Um, and then I've got lots of um, weekend staff who are mostly at the Griffin School um, and other surrounding schools. Um, in the holidays, so at the moment, I've got lots of people back from university. So you'll see a bit of a mix-up in the team at the moment. But normally, there's about four or five full-time permanent staff and then there's a few I've got a couple of mums with kids so they do a couple of days a week around childcare um, I'm obviously here most of the time um, but there's lots of youngsters that come and go and we get lots of siblings as well actually which is really nice so um, you sort of loosely know what you're going to get when you work your way through a family <laughs> and the the menu that you have here um, I mean it's, it's quite a varied menu isn't it it's mainly what would you say lunchtime type fare and coffee and cakes and things rather than big uh, meat and two veg but just tell us a little bit about your your rationale in menu items so we keep it really simple um there's lots of coffee shops in Sherbourne um and our kind of idea is that we don't want to be do anything too fancy um but what we focus on really is the local suppliers so we use Silverthorne Farm eggs we get our cheese from Longman's Dairy um, we get our meat from the butchers, um, we make all our quiches and things, we make all of our cakes. So it's really focusing on homemade, local produce, supporting local businesses. We use Oxford's Bakery, um, our wine and uh, beer comes from vineyards in Sherbourne. So it's really about focusing on local more than focusing on crazy fancy things. It's keeping it really simple. Everybody's going through difficult times at the moment whether you're an individual or whether you're in business and we hear a lot about the challenges of running small businesses at the present time what would you summarize that I mean I know it's different in different sectors but for somebody in the hospitality trade what are the key issues right now around the cost of living and everything that we're having to cope with so I think there's two things for me. One is obviously energy costs. So um, at one point our energy bills hit £3,000 a month, um, which was quite steep. Um, I've managed to get them down a fair bit now, but they're still much higher than they were when I was first here. Um, minimum wage, so I think when I was first here, minimum wage was 6 25 an hour, and it's now 10 50 or thereabouts an hour. Um, so that's not far off doubling, but I can't really double the cost of what I sell because people don't want to pay five pounds for a coffee so it's looking at ways of I mean we run on really tight staff numbers anyway um but looking on ways of um minimizing our energy usage so making sure we're turning everything off I've changed a few appliances our freezer costs seven pound fifty a day to run so looking at whether we can manage with something different 
you know, I'm a mathematician by trade, so I've always been quite on top of my numbers. Um, but I've really had to focus on squeezing my suppliers as much as I can. And um, I have two or three main suppliers and, and flicking between them every time I place an order to see what's the cheapest where, because they all run offers, so keeping an eye on that kind of thing. Um, because some of the things we buy... Um, it can make quite a difference depending on what you know it's, if it's 50p a case here or there but sometimes it's five pounds a case here or there and it really does add up um you know i have had to put my prices up like everybody has um but i'd like to think we still are pretty reasonable compared to lots of other places certainly compared to the chains we are cheaper across the board um and better i would say and probably almost certainly be able to prove because we make everything from scratch i'd cut my hours back um, for various reasons but I've had to come back pretty much full time um, we're doing lots of outside catering so I was at an event actually all day yesterday um, so either supplying food or sometimes we actually go along the, the event we went to yesterday um, two of us went along and we were there all day hosting the event um, so things like that diversifying looking for the opportunities um, and again using social media to spread the news about what we do and um, raise awareness we do, we do lots of charity things we're involved with lots of the schools um, I'm a governor of one of the local schools now I go in and speak to um, students at the schools we get lots of um, students in for work experience from uh, Harbour Vale School especially we work really closely with um, and just doing lots of things in the community to support the community but also it's because then that kind of goes full circle so then the people see us out at different events and then they come in here so um, it kind of works both ways those events for us and what about plans for the future more of the same or have you got any big ideas I don't have time to come up with big ideas <laughs> I think just more of the same but the, the main thing people said when I took over was please don't change anything apart from the coffee and I did change the coffee almost immediately to Reed's coffee which is roasted just down the road but people like it how it is and as I said earlier there's there's lots of coffee shops in Sherbourne and we all do something a bit different so if people come in here and I can't offer them what they want I'll recommend a different coffee shop and I know that the others do that for me there's a lot of support here in town between the businesses and I think actually we've all got our niche and, and we should all focus on on doing that and sometimes I'll, I'll push the boundaries a little bit but often if somebody asks me for something thing that I don't do I'll say to them you know and I've actually got an event coming up where I've said actually I'd rather we get that from Oxford than I try to make it because I know that they make it really well um so I think just just continuing to to push what we do and do as much of it as we can really is is my focus at the moment let's end with a different note you're just back from Glastonbury I know you're an addict you go there every year don't you and I, I think you 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 work your fare somehow don't you, you um, while you're there you volunteer but just tell us about Glastonbury I've been for the last five years. I didn't actually work this year. I have worked previously um, for... I've got a friend in Sherbourne and she is a, she coordinates the stewards in one of the areas of Glastonbury. So I've done that one year. But this year we just went in as a family. Um, it's, just, it's just a different world. It's the only place really where I genuinely switch off, literally switch off my phone, don't look at anything. You know, my phone is on if someone rings me and that's it. Turn off all my emails and everything. It's just a different world. You can just relax. Um, there's so much on. There's so much. This year, because we took the kids in, so we spent quite a lot of time in the circus area, which I hadn't really done before. That was really good fun. It's not all about the headline acts. And everyone says, oh, you know, the lineup, da 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 But it's really not all about that. It's about all the experiences and the sounds and the smells and the things you can eat and the camping, although that gets harder every year until I get older every year. The airbirds get thicker each year. And it's, you know, it's local. I always see loads of people there that I know bump into people that I haven't seen since the previous Glastonbury. It's just, and you know, it's on our doorstep and it's just, it's just such an experience. It's hard. If you've never been, it's really hard to convey what it's like. 
Um, and I've, I've never been until my mid-30s, late-30s even. And then since then, I've been um, every year that it's been on. We've obviously missed a couple of years for COVID. But, um, yeah, so I've been going for a few... I've been to the last five, I think. Um, but it takes... Definitely Monday for me was a real struggle. I'm almost back up the right way now. I vaguely know what day it is, I think. <laughs> so much more than a music festival. Jane, thank you very, very much for talking to us. Thank you. In June's BV magazine, farmer and regular contributor Andrew Livingston writes about what the post-Brexit trade deals struck with Australia and New Zealand, which came into force on June the 1st, mean for British farmers. British farmers worry that imported foodstuffs will undercut home-produced goods. I asked Andrew how realistic that worry is. It is a massive, massive worry. Um, Unfortunately, Countries like Australia and New Zealand can grow food very, very cheaply and without the welfare standards that UK farmers have to meet. And unfortunately, when when a shopper goes into your Morrisons, your Waitrose, your Lidl, they will look at the shelves and they will just pick whichever piece of meat is cheapest. They won't... The vast, vast majority of shoppers do not bother to look and check to see whether their food is British or not. Well, of course, since, uh, you, you know, with, with prices having gone up considerably uh, over the last, what, year, it, it, you, it's quite understandable that people should be thinking of how much is this going to cost me and, you know, where and, where and how can I buy cheapest? Uh, so perhaps it is a little bit of a luxury to think, right, I've got to buy British at, uh, at all costs. Uh, it's, it's not so much about supporting British farmers. It's more of a welfare issue because you know that food produced in Britain is of the highest welfare standard. If, if you're not interested in the welfare of the animals and you're not interested in supporting British farming, then that is your prerogative to choose whichever food you want. But if you are concerned about how your leg of lamb has got to your plate, it's, it's just something that you need to consider. So, for instance, what, what would be some of the issues there? Uh, issues in, in welfare? Yes. Uh, well, it's, it's mass production. It's also a case of using um, antibiotics willy-nilly. It's dangerous for the animals. Farmers in this in this country are, are small fry compared to the the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sheep that you'll have on a single farm in Australia and New Zealand. The issue is is that the, as soon as you sign the trade deal, the terms of the trade deal can be adjusted very easily, and there is room within the the small print of the trade deal for there to be reviews each year from from what can be sent over. It takes one simple decision on behalf of the government for farmers to end up being screwed, essentially. Now, you're a farmer, Andrew, and you meet and talk to many other farmers in this county. What's the mood amongst them as to what the future holds? And bearing in mind, of course, the fact that farmers are very often a pessimistic bunch. They are. Yes, yeah, farmers farmers are predominantly pessimistic, but it is it has not been a good few years for agriculture. The issue the issue with Brexit is that farmers still don't know where they're going to be in twelve months' time. They don't know what funding what they're going to get from the government, which used to be 
from the EU in place of subsidies that they don't even know how they can get work, a workforce because we're now banning decent workers coming into this country doing the work that the British population will not do because they have no interest in doing it. And is the government doing enough, do you think, to help farmers get the uh, the imported labour that they need since you say that um, our own people uh, in, in on this island are not willing to do the sort of rural work, the, the agricultural work that uh, foreign workers did? Uh, no, 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 they're, they're not, essentially. Um, a report, has been, an independent report has been released today on the UK labour force and agriculture, which was commissioned by the government last August when all the issues in the vegetables and the pig sector all, all began. And the report is just wishy-washy. It's just about implementing strategies and ensuring that we have access, access to migrant labour, but it's just going to be ignored. Until automation has come far enough for the UK farmers to rely on automatic vegetable pickers that are cheap enough for them to buy, it's going to be a bumpy ride. The issue is is that agriculture takes so much fall planning because you're investing on a crop that you're not going to get profit out of. For well, If it's apples, if you're buying apple trees, you're not going to get any return out of purchasing an apple tree for two to three years. If you put that investment in, you've got no income for two to three years and then you can't find anyone to pick the apples, your business is ruined. I wanted to ask you, why, Andrew, do you think it's so hard to get Brits to do the work on the land? After all, it's work, isn't it? It's such a tough question, but I think it's mainly, it's mainly just to do with children's upbringing nowadays, I think. I don't think kids really know what a hard day's work is and they just don't have the aptitude to do it. I don't know if it's just that foreign workers are so much more eager to earn and make money whilst I think a lot of people nowadays just want to coast by and they always feel as though they could do better than than what they are. Do you think it's a byproduct of the fact that we are increasingly urbanised and uh, people regard uh, work, uh, manual labour, as um, rather beneath them? Uh, Most definitely, yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't so much blame it on urbanisation, but I I think it's just just the modern generation. Getting the hands dirty just doesn't doesn't seem appealing whatsoever. Because, uh, I mean, when I do a hard day's work, I feel satisfied that I've done something hard and I've I've put my back in. The, the, The problem with during COVID when we were all trying to get British people who were on furlough to go out and pick fruit was they were too slow to do it because you're paid on the weight of the produce that you pick. So if you're quick, you can earn really, really good money. But people were so slow that they weren't even making minimum wage because they just, they don't work hard enough. Andrew, people could, it could be said that you're being just a wee bit unfair maybe on the, on the, uh, on the younger generation, but has this been your personal experience in your farming career? No, no, not in my farming career. It's, it, it is much more of an issue with because I've always been on small family farms, so we've never had the need for seasonal workers or anything like that. It's, it's when, you, when you get to these, these fruit and veg farms and the, the flower picking 
that that's where the hard hard days graft in the sun is and it is it is hard work uh, but could automation be the answer uh, it, it eventually will be the, the strides in automation have been massive but the problem is for most farmers it's just too expensive andrew livingston Finally, in this episode, I visited Karen Geary, deep in the rural Dorset countryside, to talk a little bit about what a nutritional therapist does, and for her to elaborate on her recent article in the BV online magazine regarding snacking. Today I'm speaking to Karen Geary out in the Dorset countryside. We're near Tarrant Gunville, aren't we? We are in Tarrant Gunville, yep. sunny and Tarrant Gunville. It's a delightful location and of course made all the better by the sunshine that we have today but you're sort of off the beaten track here Karen and it's a really nice place to live. Yes, very tucked away, very happy to live here. Anyway Karen, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You are a, a dietitian? Tell me what, no, how I'm you not, define I'm yourself. No, I'm not a dietitian. I'm a nutritional therapist. Um, a dietitian is somebody who deals with acute conditions, often in hospital and end-of-life care. Um, they treat people. Um, nutritional therapists um, have a slightly different modality. Um, they support optimum nutrition. Um, they look at the whole person, not disease management um, with the overall objective of getting to root causes and to find out why. This is a slightly different way of looking at it. And how did you come into this? I don't think you've been doing it all your life, have you? No, I um, started practising in 2020. I qualified just before the pandemic, so it was a great time to start business at the beginning of lockdown. I started late in life. I did a degree, started in 2015 when I was in California and finally finished in 2022. So it's quite an intensive um, science degree and quite an area of uh, research which is moving quite quickly. But, you know, living in California, you get inspired by the Healthy Eating Brigade, all the kind of the tech bros. I was working with tech bros at the time. I'm a corporate person by background. And the availability of food and things is just wonderful. I also had some illness in the family, so I, I felt I wanted to do it. And, and like most things I do, it was a hobby that went too far. So um, here I am now, um, still connected to the corporate world, but um, very much practising this and part of my retirement planning, I suppose. Obviously an interest there, a latent interest, which you're now bringing to fruition. Tell us a little bit about what you do day by day as a nutritional therapist. Do you have a client base or what happens? People seek me out as a line of last resort. They're frustrated because they're not getting answers. Often it's gut, that's what I specialise in. And they're fed up of bloating or gut type symptoms that they just can't resolve and they can't get answers from doctors or other avenues. I do a lot of sophisticated testing, um, stuff that you can't get on the NHS, um, and also look at other avenues as well. So I look at their whole life, um, their whole medical history to try and understand why. It's very often stress-related, but often there are other underlying issues. I go to the gut because the nutritional therapist tends to look there first uh, as an underlying issue. And that, that's what I do for probably 80%. The other 20%, it's hormone-related. Some of it's ageing, people concerned um, with cardiovascular issues, Alzheimer's, dementia, those sorts of things. Now, the article which you contributed to the June edition of the online magazine is mainly based around snacking. 
and I guess we're all guilty of that to to a greater and lesser extent. But, I mean, you make some links there with the little and often culture, which some people are told is is a good thing because it stabilises glucose levels, but you kind of shoot that down in a way. Is that a good principle or not, the little and often? It can be. Um, The answer is it depends, and it depends on your objectives. So if you are an athlete, for example, that might be a perfectly reasonable strategy, and you need a continual supply of energy to keep you going, and you also need a high protein intake. And to get enough protein into your system, you need to be eating quite a lot of protein, and therefore to do that, you need to be breaking it up. So so that's that's one option. Um, The other option is that snacking, people forget how much they're eating, And often snacking is mindless. I do believe that calories matter. It's not the whole story. But can you just eat one biscuit? (laughs) No. (laughs) I can't. And and sometimes it's just better. If you're having two biscuits in the morning, maybe some salty snacks in the afternoon, you know, you can find suddenly a 30% of your calorie intake. Um, So a lot of my clients who struggle to lose weight, for example, that's where we start. Um, and taking the snacking out does give the opportunity to keep the blood glucose levels lower for longer, which can be helpful, not just necessarily just from a, an insulin point of view, but also from a calorific point of view and a gut health point of view. And snacking obviously promotes the production of insulin, yeah. which is the body's way of breaking down the sugars. Yeah. Is that of itself going to promote weight gain or is it does it depend on what it's breaking down um, not necessarily um, you, you're referring to something called the insulin hypothesis which has been shot down in flames by a lot of people and I can understand why they would say that it, the insulin hypothesis is basically something um, where somebody would say the more carbs you eat the more likely you are to store fat that's not necessarily the full story um, again it depends The idea is to keep things at a reasonably low level. I would always go to calories before I would go to insulin. Ideally, you would need both. Um, But you do need insulin to clear the glucose out of your blood. It's a bit like blowing up a balloon. Um, Eventually, the balloon gets full, and ordinarily, you're trying to stuff the insulin in to try and clear it, and you just can't get any more in, and that's how you get insulin resistant. And then the pancreas starts to back up and it gets fatty and it starts to fail and that's how you get diabetes. A lot of people will be in the habit of snacking. I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's almost ingrained into the mind the way we live, isn't it? Mm. So you, you, you have a cup of tea at 3.30 and you always have a biscuit with it. Yeah. That's quite a difficult psychological thing to break. So yeah. is it a case that just snack on something more healthy and you'll be okay or really have you got to get over that snacking thing altogether if you want to lose weight i'd try and give it up if you can go four hours between food or even five great we're supposed to feel hungry (laughs) um we've forgotten what that feels like if i'm totally honest I i wouldn't worry about insulin if you want to have a snack have something healthy Um, I will add, just to confuse listeners, that people who take the Wagovi and Zempic, their insulin levels are higher than normal. So it's not necessarily insulin is a bad thing. They're still losing weight. Um, But what we have to do if we're snacking is go for nuts, olives, dark chocolate, piece of fruit. 
not the stuff that's not that good for us, the salty, fatty stuff, sugary stuff. There is always the line that a little of what you fancy does you good. I presume you wouldn't deny somebody a chocolate biscuit on a very occasional basis. If they fancy it, it might do the mind good. I've had one today. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear that you're human. (laughs) Now, you also make a point in the article that some of these snacks can trigger an, an inflammatory response from the body how's that then how does that work well if you think about the gut most of the immune system lives there and um, some of the snacks that we have and indeed a lot of the foods we have there's been a lot written about ultra processed foods just lately they create something called an inflammatory response in the gut and that's fine every now and then if you want a bag of crisps go for it i'm never going to deny i love my salty foods But if you're constantly living on that stuff, over time it will change the ecology of your gut. That changes how you absorb foods, how you react to foods, how you digest foods, and whether you've actually got a balanced garden. That's what I I like to use the metaphor that the, the microbiome is a garden. And chronically inflaming the gut continually that's when we start to see things like metabolic disorders, like heart disease, like type 2 diabetes, brain fog, brain disorders, things like that. That's why you see the media starting to get more concerned about the overuse of um, processed foods because of the consumption of it and what it's actually doing to our overall health. It's not necessarily just a weight thing or a cholesterol thing. It's a longer-term thing. And there are many gut-related disorders, irritable bowel being one of the most prominent and and quite widespread. A lot of people would profess to suffer from that. Mm. Would you say that by changing your diet in the way you suggest to get away from processed food and sugar and that sort of thing, that that can also be improved? Is there any evidence to that effect? Yes, certain fats, for example, fats that contain a lot of omega-6 and if you're eating omega-6 out of balance with omega-3 you need to keep the two balanced and things like corn oil soybean oil vegetable oil that's on chips for example um, seed oils they're very high in omega-3 and they're cheap and that's what's in the processed foods that's what you get in your pizzas that's what you get in your deep fried food very often that's what can create irritation so often when i'm doing consultation with a client i do look quite carefully at what they're eating and where they're eating it Um, i get a lot of young girls who are eating four or five takeaways a week chances are they're eating stuff in a lot of sunflower oil in them Um, so that's where i'd start you mentioned the omega-3 and omega-6 is that the same as we get in fatty fish? I mean, I thought that was a good thing rather than yeah, a bad thing. Omega-3 in fatty fish. That's in what we call the smash fish. That's salmon, mackerel, anchovies, herring, those sorts of those sorts of. Foods. But we're told to eat more of that rather than less of it. More of that. More omega-3. It's actually quite hard um, to get enough. And also you can get it from flax. So um, sometimes the body finds it harder to absorb it from vegetable sources. You can also get it in olive oil, a couple of tablespoons of olive oil a day. Very good um, with omega-3, lots of polyphenols, very good for gut health. Olive oil used to be what matron gave you in prep school, wasn't it? That's right, yes, she was right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you mentioned breaking the habit and you you specifically mentioned cue, routine and reward. We're on to the psychology of it now. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about 
how that works? Uh, your, your brain's hardwired to habit. So when I was waiting for you today, I was hanging around in the kitchen. When I go in the kitchen, I open the fridge door. And, and I know a lot of people do that. So the best, the best thing that you can do is to stay out of the kitchen. But that's difficult for me because I'm, I'm the one that cooks at home. You look in the fridge and you're looking for an answer to something. Normally it's a piece of chocolate or a biscuit or something like that. That's a cue. So make a note of your cues. What is it that's going to trigger the action of, oh, I think I'll just have that. I'm just having a cup of tea. I'll have to have a biscuit with it. Make a note of it and try and do something else instead. Go for a walk around the garden and call a friend. Do something to try and break it, but be aware of it. Don't deny yourself. But if you're trying to do something for yourself and you're trying to cut snacking, that's that's one option. OK, so moving on to the other bits of that, then it's it's cue routine. So the routine is what you do yeah. in response to the cue. And then reward. And then the reward is the chocolate biscuit at yeah. the end of it. Yeah. So it's swapping that for something more meaningful. The other, the other one that people suffer with a lot is um, the office cake. If you work in an office, typically you get the office feeders and they like to bring in homemade cake and biscuits and they suddenly turn up at three o'clock in the afternoon and you all feel compelled to go and gather around the cake and and try it. <laughs> well, why not? Um. <laughs> exactly right. So there you know, that's, that's another, you know, being aware of it, you can still be sociable, just eat half of it. You don't have to eat the whole thing. Fair enough, yes. You mentioned a glucose monitoring device mm. is this something that would be specifically for people with insulin related conditions or can this benefit everybody type 2 diabetic uh, diabetics uh, often wear them they're expensive but actually if you use it for a couple of weeks you probably get enough and you're not diabetic enough to to uh, know the pattern and it's instead of pricking your finger to test um, to test your test your blood you put it on the back of your arm and uh, it continually tracks what your blood glucose looks like. When you eat something, you see it raise, and then it, you can see how long it takes to come down again. It's educational if you're not type 2 diabetic and you're interested in what spikes your glucose. So for me, and we're all different, it's chickpeas. That's an, a rather unusual one. And very annoying. Um, I can slow it down with lots of fat. You put lots of fat in there. It's just higher but for a sustained period of time. So one of the things about glucose monitoring is you can see the things that can be really quite high in terms of trigger, triggering your, your blood sugar. So for somebody that's been trying to lose weight over a period of years and hasn't been very successful, that might be one of the options. If they are sure that they are eating in a calorie deficit, um, and I have to say that most people don't, they think they do and they're not, um, that's the, the first thing I would say, but there are certainly people that have other issues at play um, and it is certainly something to look at as another option. But the, the other thing about uh, glucose monitoring, it's more about weight, it's about cholesterol. Um, if you're worried about lipids, if you're worried about metabolic health, if you're worried about brain function during ageing, keeping your sugars low, I, I think is a good thing. But just ending on a positive note, if you fancy something... As a very occasional treat, that cream eclair or that piece of pavlova after your dinner, not a problem as long as not you don't have problem. it three times a day. Not, not a problem. Not a problem. But not every day. Karen, thank you very much for talking to us today. Pleasure. You happy with that? Do you fancy a blueberry muffin? <laughs> I've got some in the kitchen. <laughs> 
Karen Geary there, and that's all we have time for in the current episode of the BV Magazine podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Join us again in July. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.